Well, good morning, everyone. <laughs> they let me out of my box again, which is pretty cool. So for those of you who don't know me, um, I'm Pastor Vance. I'm a volunteer teaching pastor here at Res. So uh, it's my privilege to be able to bring you God's word um, today. We are starting a brand new series beginning this Sunday, and we're calling it, as you saw on the screens, Heroes of the Faith. So we're going to be focusing throughout the summer upon Hebrews chapter 11, which is often called the faith chapter of the Bible, but we're also going to be going elsewhere in Scripture too, dealing with people who are wonderful examples to us of what it means to live out our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I get to start this off as we're going to be talking about at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11, defining faith, taking a look at some three facts actually about faith as well. So we're going to get started with that momentarily. So I invite you, if you haven't already done so, to uh, go in your Bible, whether you have it on your phone, an app, or printed, go to Hebrews chapter 11. Or if you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles in the pew in front of you. All right? Now, as you're doing that, we've already mentioned a number of times Father's Day. So I thought, started me thinking as I was working on this message, that, you know, sometimes fathers have to answer really challenging questions from their kids. So there was a song that used to be sung many years ago by a fellow named Harry Belafonte. And in the song, um, what happened was the father's seven-year-old son came to him and asked him, where do babies come from? And so the song is about the answer that the father gave to his son involving that question, where do babies come from? So um, I haven't done this in 40 years, but I'm actually going to try to sing this. So here we go. When I was a lad of three foot three, certain questions occurred to me. So I asked my father quite seriously, tell me the story about the bird and bee. Uh-oh. He stammered and he stuttered pathetically, and this is what he said to me. He said, the woman, Piaba, and the man, Piaba, and the ton-ton, called bot, lemongrass, the lily root, gully root, belly root, <clears throat> and the famous grandi scratch, scratch. <laughs> and if you have any questions about what that means, talk to Pastor Steve. <laughs> Hopefully, learning what the Bible has to say about faith is going to be much, much clearer than that song. I hope so. Because we need to understand very clearly what biblical faith is all about, because sadly, for even Christians, a lot of times we do not necessarily have a good handle on what the Bible actually teaches us about faith. So, that's why we're doing this series. That's especially why we're focusing on some certain key things about faith this morning. Now, how can Hebrews 11 help us to understand faith? Well, first of all, as we're going to see momentarily in verse 1, 
It gives us a definition for faith. One verse, probably the best definition in all of scripture describing what exactly faith is. Then verse six, it gives us an explanation of how important faith is before God. And then it gives us concrete examples of people who lived by faith. As a matter of fact, that little phrase, by faith, appears 18 times just in this one chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. Now, what are we gonna do especially for today? Well, first of all, our topics for today's message, we're gonna define biblical faith, which means we're gonna look very carefully at Hebrews 11 verse one. Then, after we do that, we're gonna be learning three facts about biblical faith. One fact is actually revealed as we look at the experience and the challenge for the people who originally got this letter, and that is true faith is revealed in action. And that's the closing verses of chapter 10. Then number two, faith-based people please God. That's in verse two of Hebrews 11. And finally, verse three, biblical faith explains how everything got started. Which, by the way, if you remember that third song that Lee and the worship team led us in, that ties in directly to Hebrews 11.3. So let's go ahead and learn about defining biblical faith. So let's take a look very carefully at Hebrews 11.1. Read it with me, please. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Here we go. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The word translated in my Bible, assurance, the Greek word hypostasis, is one of those words that we sadly do not have a perfect English language equivalent for that word. It has three possible ranges of meaning, okay? That's the reason why if you read Hebrews 11.1 1 in other translations of the Bible, you're gonna see that it is translated differently. So for example, if you happen to read it in the New King James or the King James Version, it says there, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Meaning that faith is a solid, sure reality. This Bible, it translates it as faith is the assurance of things hoped for, or if you're reading it in the New International Version, it says that faith is the confidence. Faith then is based upon an absolute committed trust in the Lord. And one other way to understand it is that faith is a certain guarantee guarantee that we can count on. Meaning that this particular word, again, is used when they would sign legal contracts or they would have to sign deeds for property and things like that, they use this Greek word. So, if we smush these three possible ranges of meaning together for that one Greek word, here's a possible definition we can come up with for faith. Biblical faith, is a tangible, confident certainty in God and his promises. Think of Psalm 23. 
In Psalm 23, David there writes at one point, talking about how even though he goes through the valley of the shadow of death, or as some Bibles translate it, through the darkest valley, he's not scared. He's not afraid. Because he knows God is with him. That's faith. That's a certainty. Looking back at Hebrews 11.1, 1, notice the next thing he says. Faith is the conviction. This word is used in judicial courts at that time when they were looking for evidence to prove a crime or evidence to disprove a crime. So we could translate this conviction as evidence. Faith is based upon evidence. Whether that is in terms of how our faith has changed us in our own lives or whether we're looking at evidence outside of our own lives, how the Lord has changed other people's lives or other forms of evidence, the point is faith is not hopeful thinking. It's based upon solid evidence. And the last thing, faith is the conviction of things not seen. You know, think of if we had up here on this platform a very large glass bubble with a small opening at the base of that glass bubble so that the air could enter the bubble, all right? So that glass bubble is now filled with air. But imagine we attach a pump to that opening and we draw the air out of that glass bubble. The bubble still looks the same, difference being There's one thing that's now missing in it, air. But it looks the same. Air is just something we take for granted all around us, but believe me, if the air suddenly disappeared, we know it. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. You may remember an old movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You know what's my favorite scene in that old film? It's when Jones' father, and he's got a difficult relationship with his father, if you've seen the film, and his father is shot, and his father is dying. And the only way that Jones can save his father, now, you got to realize this is a Hollywood film, okay? He has to go, and he has to get this cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper, and if he gets this cup and fills it with water and brings it to his father, and his father drinks of the cup, his father will be healed. The only problem is, is to get to the cup, Jones, who's standing now at the edge of a cave, looking out, the cave is, the other cave where the cup is located is about 20, 25 feet away. The problem is, is there's a chasm between him and where he needs to go. If he doesn't get there, his father is dead. He looks down at the chasm. It doesn't seem a possibility. He has no choice. He puts out his foot and he steps. And his foot is resting on an invisible path between where he is to where the cave is. He had to take a step of faith. Otherwise, his father would have died. Faith involves stepping out and trusting God.
okay? All right, so now let's talk about three facts about biblical faith. The first fact is revealed in verses 32 through 39 of chapter 10. Remember, when Hebrews was written, there were no chapters, okay? It was all just one letter. And by the way, as one guy said, only God knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. But we have this wonderful book of scripture. But in verses 32 through 39 of chapter 10, we can discover there that true faith is revealed in action. It's like what James says in James 2.26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. In other words, you can't separate, we cannot separate faith from what we do. The two go together. Now, a little bit of background before we read these verses. The Jewish Christians that was the first audience who read this letter, they were a bunch of Jewish Christians in a house church in the city of Rome. House church because they didn't have buildings for churches like what we have today. Those didn't exist for the first 300 years of the church, all right? So they were a house church, and the deal was they were being sorely tempted to turn their back on Jesus, to reject Christianity, turn their back on Jesus, and return to kind of a glorified, rose-tinted version of Judaism. So the writer of Hebrews, who knows these people very well, wrote this letter telling them, don't do it. Hold on to Jesus and hold on to your faith in him because what you have in Jesus is far better than what you're going to find elsewhere. So let's start reading now at verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that's when they got saved, you endured a hard struggle with suffering sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Okay, let's stop there for a second. 11, 12, 13 years earlier, these people had to make a very tough stand for Jesus. Roman historians tell us that around 49 AD, the emperor Claudius kicked out all of the Jews, and there were hundreds of thousands of them. He kicked them all out of the city of Rome. And the Roman historians tell us why. They were rioting. And they were rioting over somebody named Crestus. They were rioting over Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what was going on, these Jewish Christians were sharing the gospel with their fellow Jews, and some of the fellow Jews were believing and some of them weren't, and riots broke out. And the Romans said, okay, forget it. We're not going to deal with you people. Get out! So there was suffering. There was persecution. There was imprisonment. There were some of them who were not in prison, but go and supplied and met the needs of their people who were in prison, because if you didn't have friends outside of prison helping you, you could starve to death in a Roman prison. At grave personal risk, they were helping their compadres. 
and they had the confiscation of their property and everything that happened were things that Jesus warns us about if we follow him. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, the Lord says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, that means insult you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul, in his last letter that he wrote, he wrote it to his dear protege, Timothy, and here's what he told him, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, these Jewish Christians in a time of great trial, the only thing that did not happen to them is they didn't die for their faith. But everything up to that point, they endured. They hung on. Now the question is, in this present trial, when they're being tempted to once more turn their back on Jesus, because going back to Judaism seems so much easier Will they hang on? Here's something we need to remember, guys. Faith that does not stand up under trials is not real faith. What it is, is wishful thinking. It's hope so thinking. So, if we're going through trials and difficulty, as we're going to discover, going through trials and difficulty may be exactly God's will for us. The question is, are we going to hang on? Now, let's start reading again, beginning at verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done, catch this, when you have done the will of God. The will of God involves enduring trials. The will of God involves being faithful. No matter what. When you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. We need to remember two things when we're going through a present trial. And that's what he's going to say next. Four, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. The coming one, guys, is Jesus. We don't know when he's going to return, but we have the certainty, repeatedly, his promise that he will. So the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 12, 
Jesus says this, look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each one according to his work. Now, we need to catch this, okay? The writer brings up their past faithfulness to remind them that, hey, you guys stood the trial. You did just fine, although you went through all this really, really difficult stuff. So don't reject what you've already gone through, okay? Because the Lord is going to come back. So the idea is we want to, to kind of put it this way, biblical faith learns from the past, but it keeps its focus on the future, So what can help us as we're going through present trials is to remember how God took us through the past. Guys, if he was faithful then, he will be faithful now. We don't have to have all the answers. What we have to do is trust. Now that's the first thing. Remembering Jesus is going to be returning And he wants us to be faithful to him. The next thing is in verse, the very next verse. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. Now, these two verses, it's a quote taken from a small book in the Old Testament called Habakkuk. Fascinating book of scripture. Habakkuk chapter two, verses three and four. That's whom the writer, that's where the writer is quoting from. Now the deal is, though these same two verses are quoted twice by Paul. He quotes them in the book of Galatians. He quotes them again in the book of Romans. And then the writer of Hebrews quotes them. So if we have two verses of the Bible that are being quoted three different times in the New Testament, it's probably pretty important, don't you think? Paul quotes these verses, the righteous shall live by faith, and what Paul is focusing on is a decision. Our salvation is based upon faith in Christ, correct? We have to make a decision to trust and to walk by faith. It's a choice that everybody has to make. We cannot get to heaven with our works. We have to trust. Christ alone for our salvation. But the writer of Hebrews, he's focusing on another part. When he says the righteous shall live by faith, he means more the idea of faithfulness. We make a decision to come to the Lord, which is what Paul emphasizes, but the writer of Hebrews, especially since he's giving us all these examples in chapter 11 of people who kept living by faith, kept walking by faith, it's an ongoing process. Over here in this large park that, Lord willing, we're going to get that park fixed up again. It's going to look nice, right? It's called Peacock Park. And there is a large headstone with a carving of a past pastor of the old church, Pastor Jack Peacock. No, he's not buried there, okay? (laughs) But Jack, who was my childhood pastor, he was basically a cowboy at heart. He owned at one point two mules, all right? 
And he loved to take those mules basically down to the riverbed and walk them along in the mules. So imagine this, you have this pastor who looks like a cowboy and acted like a cowboy, riding his wagon with two mules ahead of him. And those mules love to walk in that riverbed. So they would tromp along as they were going, and after a while, they kind of got into a rhythm between the two of them, okay? And then after a while, that rhythm was so that their ears were doing this. Okay, now I'm not saying we're mules, but I am saying that's kind of a picture of what walking by faith is. It's one step in front of the other. That's faithfulness. So the first fact, faith is basically accompanied by what we do. All right? Our actions are evidence of our faith. Now, look at verse 2 of Hebrews 11, because the next fact about faith is that faith-based people please God. For by a people of old receive their commendation. Now, please understand me. Commendation, not not condemnation. Okay? Commendation. It can also be translated this word testify. Bear witness. And the word shows up four different times in this one chapter. You look ahead, verse 4. Next week, we're going to learn about somebody named Abel. Abel was commended for his faith. We're also going to learn about a guy named Enoch. Enoch, again, was commended for his faith. And then you go to the very end of the chapter, verse 39, after the writer has listed for us all of these wonderful people who all live by faith, they were all commended for their faith. Who is commending all these people? Who is testifying about their faith? It's the Lord. This is called a divine passive, something that I've talked about before with us. It's where God is the person who is acting. It is the Lord himself who is testifying and saying, these people were faithful. These people bore witness about me. These people testified about me to their generation. And their witness lives on. By the way, think about somebody that you know that God used in your life who loved the Lord and who faithfully served the Lord up until the moment the Lord called them home, that's also somebody who is commended for their faith. So, I want to make this personal. How can we receive commendation from the Lord? How can we live lives that are pleasing to the Lord? Well, there's lots of things, but briefly, two things that absolutely have to happen. Keep your place here in Hebrews 11, but go with me over to Matthew chapter 25. Because in Matthew chapter 25, there's a parable there, and we're not going to take time to read the entire parable, but it's called the parable of the talents. 
a parable that Jesus himself told to his disciples. And I'm going to read at Matthew 25, and I'm starting at verse 14, because this teaches us, this story, one of the things that has to happen if we're going to live lives that the Lord is going to commend. So, verse 14, Hebrews 25. For at will, talking about Jesus' return and what happens in between. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Now, a talent basically represents 20 years wages. So it's a lot of money, okay? Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. He doubled the investment. So also the one who had two talents made two talents more. But the one who had received the one talent went away, dug in the ground, and hid his master's money. Idiot. (laughs) Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with him. And the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done. Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Okay, I'm going to stop there. We want to live a life that God is going to commend. We got to be faithful in our service to him. Notice that whether it was the five-talent guy or was the two-talent guy, the words of praise were exactly the same. So it doesn't really matter before the Lord whether he has entrusted to us lots of gifts and resources or maybe not so many gifts and resources. The point is, the Lord wants us to be faithful with whatever that he has entrusted to us. Whether it is gifts, whether it is time, whatever. We want to receive God's commendation. We have to be faithful to serve the Lord. Pure and simple. And the other thing that has to happen, we have to please God. Go to back to Hebrews eleven six. It says this. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We have to choose to seek him. We have to answer yes to the question, do you want to please God? And guys, we only got one chance in this life. And none of us knows how much time he's given us. So we got to make the most of whatever we have if we want to hear 
At that moment, when we stand before Jesus, as each and every person will do, because we're told in Scripture, all of us will give an account of ourselves before God. All of us. If we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. We want to hear that. We got to make the right choices now. Okay, third fact. It's in verse three. Biblical faith explains how everything got started. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Literally, God spoke the universe into existence. That's what Genesis 1 is all about. And God said, and it happened. And the deal is, this present creation As David tells us in Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2, it reveals God's glory in nature. That's why David wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Now the deal is, there are lots of people out there who do not believe that. Some of them, Pretty smart people. Like, for example, Stephen Hawking. He wrote this. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. In other words, boom, it happened. It's not necessary to invoke God to set the universe going. Hmm. You know what Psalm 14.1 says? The fool says in his heart there is no God. Paul wrote in Romans 1.20, he said this, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now, there's something here in this verse that we need to catch, okay? Look at it again. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen, in other words, what we can see with our eyes, as we go up on a mountaintop or out in the desert or the middle of a lake once we get away from the smog, and we look up and we see all this, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, About 50 years ago, there was an astronomer, her name, she passed away a few years back, was Vera Rubin. And Vera was doing studies and she couldn't figure out why the galaxies were moving the way they were moving. Because by right, they should actually just fly apart. There shouldn't be anything out there. There had to be something that was holding everything together. So Vera and some other kind of brave astronomers with her said, maybe there's something out there that we can't see. And her colleagues, being the supportive people that they are, said, you're nuts. (laughs) Vera was right. 
She later and other astronomers later discovered something they call dark matter. You can't see it, you can't touch it. But they figured out dark matter makes up 85% of the universe. If it doesn't exist, we don't exist. Because literally, it holds everything together and we can't see it. Now, there is someone, according to scripture, who is holding everything together. And Paul wrote about him in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, it says this. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Remember that old song? He's got the whole world in his hands. Oh, he's got a whole lot more than this world in his hands, folks. He literally is holding this present universe together, and one day, he's going to let it go. And that's why we have in Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth that we're only told just a little bit about in those last two chapters of Revelation, but it's going to be glorious. I like what Leon Morris uh, New Testament scholar, he wrote this. The world is God's world, and faith assures us that God originated it. Okay, let's review. What have we learned today? Well, we learned just kind of doing our little smush definition. Biblical faith is a tangible, confident certainty in God and his promises. promises. That's what it is. Three facts about biblical faith. First fact, again, true faith is revealed in action. Second, faith-based people please God. And third, biblical faith explains how everything started. Now, there's obviously some really cool stuff in these verses, but... We need to make this personal, okay? So let's ask ourselves a couple of questions as we wrap this up in conclusion. First question, very important. Are you trusting in Jesus and nothing else? Because we can talk about faith, but bottom line, if we do not have faith in Christ alone, for our salvation, we're lost. It's over. Are you trusting in Christ alone and nothing else? Period. Second question. How much of a difference does your faith make in your life? As we're going to find out as we go through this chapter, it made a huge difference in the lives of these people. Is that the same thing that we can say about us? Can people see that we are living by faith and trusting God? 
Now, as Lee leads us in a final song, we're going to have a time. If folks want to come forward for prayer, whether it's something about this message or something else, I want to invite you to do that. If you want to come forward for, for prayer, please do so. You come as the Lord leads.